You are listening to an Unlocked New Models episode. Less than half of our interviews, discussions, audio dramas, or monologues are ever made public. To access all of our content, or to join the discussions in our Discord server, visit patreon.com slash newmodels, or newmodels.substack.com. New Models Episode 63, Loss of Distinction, with Ben Davis. I mean, it's so bad. I mean, it's so, it's so bad. Like, it's like last night I was, had a friend who was at the launch of this event near me in Brooklyn that's like Shilly, the first band based off of a bored ape. The music, it sounds like Blink-182. Blink it's just so funny. <laughs> it's, just, it's, it's just the worst thing. Um, in any case, yeah, okay, let's go ahead and start. Well, we're really happy to be joined by Ben Davis. Carly, there's no crisis in the art world. We have bands like Shilly pushing the... <laughs> and we, have, we have Ben Davis to tell us about it. That's yeah. true. Lots to unpack on today's episode. Ben is based in New York. He is the national art critic of Artnet News, a position he's held since 2016. He has bylines in all the important places, New York Times, New York Magazine, The Baffler, Jacobin, Slate, Salvage, Eflux Journal, Freeze, we could go on and on and on. He's the author of at least two books, including 9.5 Theses on Art and Class from 2013 and Art in the Afterculture, Capitalist Crisis and Cultural Strategy, which was published just last year by Haymarket Books. He recently published an article on Artnet called How We Ended Up in the Era of Quantitative Aesthetics. And it generated some discussion in the Discord and it just seemed to skewer many different factors that we were thinking about. So, well, First, welcome, Ben, to the New Models Podcast. Thank you for joining us. It's so cool to finally have you on. Thank you so much for having me. I'm genuinely really excited to talk to you. I mean, there are not that many things I think are really, really interesting in art right now, and New Models is one of them. Well, the feeling is totally mutual. There are very few people who can both think deeply and critically about the art side of the culture sector, and who also have seen a number of cycles of the art world, like you, Joshua Citarella, Dean Kissick. There's kind of a cohort of us. And I'm actually just going to read this because it will be clearer than if I um my way through it. Joshua Citarella, Dean, you, Matt Moravec, and Eleanor Hugendubel with the Seaport Talks. New models, Dina Yego, Cahill, Dis, art historians such as Michael Sanchez and Jacob King. There are many of us around the same age who have been trying to make sense of a shift we perceived happening sometime around 2012, right when our generational cohort was stepping up into the prime of our careers. We feel it so acutely, yet if you were to ask somebody slightly older than us, say like a member of Bernadette Corporation or someone who lived through the transition of the 1970s to the 1980s, the shift from these like academic post-war titans to the celebrity sceney downtown likes of Ingrid Sishi and Rene Ricard, et cetera, the 2010 Cesora, they say, isn't that remarkable. In fact, recently a professor at the Schadelskula argued with me that it didn't exist at all and that our generation was inventing it as 
an attentional tactic. But why are we so obsessed with narrating the shift? I mean, I definitely am. New models, it's like something we talk about on literally every podcast. It's as if for many of us, the job is transformed from creating a critical context for art to one of understanding what art world could even exist now. Mm -hmm. But this wasn't how, say, as actually Matt Morvick, we were just emailing about this. Um, It wasn't how the pictures artists responded, say. Like Richard Prince and Cindy Sherman, even like Andy Warhol, they embraced the age of advertising and commercial material by responding with artwork. But by contrast, we respond with think pieces and podcasts filled with this meta-analysis. Like, why is this? Why do the tools and outlets of previous eras feel so insufficient? What have our jobs as artists and critics, why do we feel that the tools that had been available for decades and decades just aren't the right tools? I feel like this article that you just published at the end of March gets at this, and so too does your book, Art in the Afterculture, Capitalist Crisis and Cultural Strategy. So maybe we could just speak in that zone for a second. Like, why is this issue so pressing for us? And what are some of the conditions that make it so in your mind? Well, you know, that's really like the question, isn't it? I mean, that's the meta question or, right. of art, of writing about art. You know, what are the rules of the game you're playing? Um, every generation is trying to figure out those rules and how to play the game in their own way. So it is a kind of an eternal question. I don't really think that it's a single factor thing. Yeah. Like in the introduction to my new book, you know, I start by talking about, you know, other periods of culture. If you think about the 1930s, the Great Depression and the New Deal, radio culture and photojournalism. It's like there's a media shift and there's a political shift, Mm. an economic shift. Those things come together to create like a different kind of feeling. And the same in the 1960s. You got the New Left and uh, Civil Rights Movement, Black Power Movement. Black arts movement, conceptual art, the beginnings of post-minimalism, early feminist art. And those things are connected, but also there are changes in media and technology and economy that are having certain kind of interplay with a certain kind of uh, formal conversation and so on. So I don't know, that's a way of saying it's complex. But I think you've articulated it really well, Carly, in the past. I mean, I think people who were in media, if you want to just take the most vulgar Marxist analysis, what it takes to like material sustain a life in those spheres changed pretty dramatically in the early 2000s. I mean, mm. almost faster than you could like conceive of it. Mm-hmm. I mean, and a quote that Julian pulled out of another interview that you gave was, an art world is defined by the institutions of circulation. Yeah. And for me, that resonates so well. That's a really succinct way of saying it. Can you speak to how the institutions yeah, of circulation yeah, yeah. have, in your view, changed. Uh, yeah, that take on the institution of circulation is very clarifying to me. The original line comes from Lawrence Alloway in 1972, writing about network theory, you know? So newly relevant, you know, cybernetics was very popular in the late 60s, early 70s as kind of a cool new theory to apply to the art conversation. And he said, you can't define an art world by the production of art because you're making art in the woods and you're not part of an art world. It's really the institutions that circulate the art or show the art exactly. or sell the art that create a conversation around it that define the sense of it as a world. And then I think what we're dealing with, you know, the kind of generational cohort you're talking about, is that the way information and images circulate now is very different. And because there's a distinction between art production and art circulation, the production in some ways, because art is a very slow, institutionally very slow. True. You just, I think 
one of the things that defines the weirdness of the present is that the kind of things that are made or celebrated kind of look the same, whereas the conversation, the way the conversation around them circulates has totally changed. So through one eye, it looks very similar. Through the other, it looks completely, totally changed landscape. And I think that defines a lot of the weirdness of the present. That's an excellent way of putting it. The object forms themselves have not gone through a very significant material transformation. But the conversation around what these object forms do and what they signify and how they're valued has changed dramatically. So if someone were to look in a vacuum, they'd say art hasn't changed. But that's actually wrong because art isn't the object, right? Art is the network of relations that hold that object in some sense of meaning and value. And um, we were just talking earlier today, actually, with Corey Archangel about like, AI is threatening artists and artists are going to be out of a job and blah, blah, blah. And it's like, well, that's not true. I mean, certainly illustrators and copywriters who are writing like clickbait titles may be out of a job. But AI is simply another tool that artists will use to intervene. And it's only going to make the conversation more interesting. Corey Archangel said that 90% of the art is not the thing itself. It's what's around it, behind it, and what came before it. Yeah, sure. I mean, that's very true. And what I would say, though, is that art, unfortunately, is not a real job. If you look at what the word artist means, it means three things simultaneously. It's a very fuzzy term. It means people who make a living off of the creative production that they desire to make. And that is its really small slice of the existence of a working artist. And then slightly larger than that is just rich people or people with a rich spouse who don't have to work (laughs) and assume the identity of artist because, well, because they they have like a creative vision or because that's a more appealing identity than just idle party person. And then the largest segment of people who identify as artists are actually people who materially sustain themselves elsewhere, often elsewhere in the culture industries, doing kind of the grind work, but actually, you know, identify aspirationally as somebody who, you know, has a a form of creative or intellectual practice that they have some kind of personal investment in. And unfortunately, the stuff that sustains the largest slice of the creative economy is the stuff that the AI is like targeted right at. That's true. Um, Automating, you know, commercial illustration, copywriting, and so on. So, yes, you could say that it will not destroy the idea of the artist because the idea of the artist in the romantic sense has always been basically what makes you feel human in an industrial world. I mean, that's Mm -hmm. the mythology of the arts exists to preserve that idea. Kind of this escape valve within capitalism where you're not alienated. Or if you're a consumer of it or, you know, a fan of it, that you can live vicariously through the idea of somebody else personally invested in a vision or form of writing. But I've been meaning to write an essay for a long time called like the work lives of the artist and just really literally go through like what was the material form of sustenance of like some list of artists that people admire because I bet that it's mostly not their artwork and I think a lot of people who want to be artists and like feel like failures because like they're not surviving off of their artwork when it's like kind of just this entire optical illusion of an economy um, that's built around it's kind of an epiphenomenon of a certain weird section of the luxury economy that produces this phantom object, the working artist as like a widely available identity. And I just think that it would be freeing for people to kind of really look at the material conditions for art 
in a more concrete way than people tend to do. Yeah. The one thing that seems somewhat exceptional about our time is that it seems as though all of the pillars that would hold up an art world are also going through some kind of existential crisis. Mm -hmm. So the publications that used to be the paths of circulation have largely folded or have been bought out. The museums and physical institutions got somewhat captured by the social political cycles of the 20-teens. And the social spaces, obviously the old conversation about real estate in New York and now Berlin and Paris and London is quite expensive. So a lot of the physical and informational nodes for some constitution of an art world have also somewhat disintegrated over the past 10 years. So even if we say we don't need this fan fantasy of an artist, everybody's so isolated in their capacity, how would you even get what you're doing into some larger arena unless, and we'll get to this in a second, you know, we're playing with quantitative aesthetics and we're playing to the mid. Well, I mean, I have something to say about circulation and stuff. Maybe this gives me a chance to talk about the quantitative aesthetic essay. I'm glad the quantitative aesthetics idea was useful to people. Just candidly, I almost didn't write the essay because I was like, this is too obvious of an idea. Um, I mean, I'm glad I did. And and in the end, it was very clarifying to me. But I just set out to write about that essay by Nathan Heller, the New Yorker, called The End of the English Degree, that talked about the collapse of enrollment in the humanities, specifically English, in the last 10 years in elite schools and liberal arts colleges, and looking at other humanities, you know, philosophy, religious studies, foreign languages, all down by double digits. Art and performance actually only down by 5%, which surprises me. Hmm. But it's a New Yorker essay, so it's not really analytical. It's, you know, talking to different dons of English about, you know, their theories about what happened. You know, is it student debt? Is it the economy? Is it the fact that tech became such a center of the conversation about both culture and the economy that just drew a lot of people. I mean, degrees in engineering and computer science have doubled in the same period. Um, So I honestly, I was just reading that article and thinking about the cultural conversation and how it was evolving. Because there are all these symptoms that I talk about in my last book that have popped up in the last like five years, even more so in the last two years. The immersive art experience, AI art, NFT scenes, you know, the causification of the art world, all these weird influencer Mm -hmm. artists who look like artists but don't do something that I would describe as art. They all seem to me different permutations of like some underlying structure where it's like an experiment to see how much of the humanity baggage of the humanities can we get rid of while still preserving something that kind of looks like art. You know, Uh so Uh I was reading and, and, and the language of culture what kind of education, what kind of exposure to arts and humanities people are getting has changed. But then, you know, if you look at the graph of the enrollment in the humanities, we're technically in the middle of the second humanities crash. Like the first big humanities crash happened in the 70s. Hmm. And the share of students studying, you know, the non-instrumental part of education, arts and letters, essentially, that peaked at about like a third of degrees sometime in the late 60s. And then basically when the first big neoliberal crisis hits and inequality starts to shoot up in the 70s, humanities enrollments dip and then plateaus for a long time in the 90s and 2000s. And then after the Great Recession, it starts dropping again. And that's where we are. The point when it drops below a third is a really important 
point sociologically because that's when you stop feeling normal. Like you stop feeling like a normal part of the conversation when you're less than a third of the people in the room. You know, now we're going to approach like 5% of enrollment are going to be uh, humanities people. That's just a very different place to be as a culture in general. I mean, of course, one other reason why this time might be different is I don't think ever in history, aside from maybe like the invention of organized religion or something, have we ever had a, I made this up, a gesamt Lebensmedia, like, <laughs> which the internet and social media really is because it provides an interactive like ersatz for all of the activities of life, like all of the social activities, all of the creative activities. And it also acts as like middleware for everything you want to do in your life, whether ordering food or finding a place to travel or finding love or sex or whatever. Just how total this disruption of media is. Gesamtums Lebenswerk. Gesamt Lebens media. Oh, media. Gesamtums yeah. Lebens media. Okay. Yeah, that's great. <laughs> that's great. But I buy it. <laughs> TM, little internet. 20. <laughs> but what I would I'm, like to do I'm is. I'm going to hold my German compound word for later and <laughs> we can talk about structure of feeling. Yeah. Because what I do want to do with that great term in mind tease out some of the things you just said there, Ben, because super interesting to think, okay, well, why and how did the humanities lose their luster? And in some ways it's obvious, but I think it still is useful to explain what is it that makes the humanities no longer be taken seriously, especially if this is supposedly the area where we should be developing useful theses on social problems. So yes, why are the humanities no longer taken seriously? How did that happen? Well, I'm gonna I'm gonna try out some material I haven't worked yeah, worked out you know from an article I'm working on now for Salvage Magazine about the idea of the culture wars. You know, there's a really famous essay called The Two Cultures from 1958 by C.P. Snow that's about the humanities versus the sciences and how there's not a conversation between them and that there should be. But what is really striking about reading that essay now is how secure the humanities are in their own self-image. I mean, he is a famous passage in it where he talks about, you know, Shakespeare scholars who like when the laws of thermodynamics come up are like, oh, it's like beneath any of our like consideration, you know. <laughs> um, and when he's writing, like the humanities are the language of power, you know, they're, they're language of prestige. And the scientists are kind of the worker bees. The engineers do like stuff, but it's not the cool creative stuff, or more specifically, the humanity, if you want to say what their purpose was historically, all the mythology around them about how great it is to have non-instrumental learning and stuff is like sort of semi-true, but on another level, you know, it was a language of power. You know, it was a language that mm -hmm. high status people absorbed because to have time to study stuff that wasn't instrumental was a high status thing. You know, it was a gentlemanly, in the gendered sense, position to be in. And then 60s come along, you have this huge explosion of enrollment in college, you know, post GI Bill boom in colleges in the United States. And a lot of the new left comes off of campuses. And I think most scholars of the new left would agree that a major problem of it was that it was too middle class, too campus oriented, and too mm -hmm. cultural. It's very poignant to hear the political debates between the politicos and the hippies, you know, arguing about whether culture itself was an agent of change. And then as the social movements go into crisis in the 70s, some people try and like go into the factories, you know, to become revolutionaries at the point of production. But most people become professors or artists. You know, culture becomes more leftist and progressive 
at the same moment that the economy and politics converges on a sort of center right to right project. Mm. And in the 1990s, the term the culture wars originates in that time period. I think it's usually told in progressive circles as this moment when the right went berserk, which is certainly true. But the flip side of that is that by that time, left stuff was just very isolated in culture and the academy. So when people talk about political incorrectness and stuff, which is another term that comes from the early 90s. PCU was like an actual like comedy in the movie yeah, theater. Yeah, yeah. Right. <laughs> with the, like David Spade or something, says his name. That's, yeah, it was like a parody on the politically correct campus culture of the early 90s. <laughs> Oh, sure. Or it's very similar phenomena is, you know, Bill Maher's Politically Incorrect, whose mm. first show, comes out of that period. I mean, it's like part of the reaction. And the flip side, it wasn't just that the right went berserk and became, you know, like religious nuts and stuff. It was also that, like, the left was now completely campus-based and ensconced in academic settings and no longer could talk to people. You know, they were literally using right. a different language, like sounded yeah. like weirdos and were really easy targets at that point. You know, you don't have any, like, economic power. You have, right. you have cultural power. And cultural power without economic power is not much. This concludes the public release of this New Models episode. To become a member of New Models and frictionlessly glide with us across the surface of tomorrow, you can join us at patreon.com slash newmodels or newmodels.substack.com. <laughs>